Yo, Rob Harvilla from 60 Songs That Explain the 90s here to inform you that we are back with 30 more songs because the 90s were super long and had a ton of rad music. Please join us every Wednesday for more 60 Songs That Explain the 90s only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by KPMG. The people at KPMG make the difference for their clients. Talented teams leveraging the right technology to uncover insights that illuminate opportunity. KPMG teams together with their clients working shoulder to shoulder to help grow and transform their enterprise. Are you ready to make the difference together? Go to visit.kpmg.us backslash transformation to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Better presentations are possible. You just need Canva presentations. With it, you can easily and quickly make stunning slides. All you have to do is start with one of Canva's professionally designed templates or generate slides with AI. Then add graphs, charts, and more from the massive media library, and you're done. It's that simple. I always think that the best use of AI in work is it does the thing that you naturally aren't very good at. And personally, one thing I'm really terrible at is making visual presentations. I'm not very visually inclined. I'm not good at picking out you know, photographs or abstract conceptual images to go with ideas I'm trying to put forward in presentations. So it's kind of nice to have an AI-powered tool that can help me make these presentations in literally seconds. Nail your next work presentation with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. Today is an emergency episode of sorts. We're moving Friday's episode up because the stock market is vomiting all over itself and I thought some of you might be interested in understanding why. So if we wind back the tape to last fall when markets were near their peak, there was this moment in history, this very specific moment, that probably should have told all of us that we're living in a simulation and the simulation's architects are laughing and laughing as they get ready to pull out the rug from under our feet. So October 28th, October 28, 2021, Crypto.com, a trading platform for cryptocurrencies, comes out with an advertisement featuring Matt Damon walking through some CGI room. He waves his hands at Columbus. He waves another arm at the Wright brothers. He talks about bravery and grit. He walks to a CGI window, and Mars is there, of course, and he turns from the camera and says, fortune favors the brave. Now, the price of Bitcoin peaked about one week later, and it has since crashed more than 50%. Matt Damon, bless his heart, love his movies, Matt Damon was the top. He said fortune favors the brave, and like basically milliseconds later, the bottom fell out of crypto. But it's not just crypto. This year, the NASDAQ is off 30%. Growth stocks and pandemic darlings, uh, Peloton, Zoom have crashed more than twice that amount. Hedge funds that backed those growth stocks, uh, ARK, Tiger Global, have seen some of the fastest collapses of any hedge fund in history. And it's starting to give people summer of 2000 vibes, dot-com era vibes. That summer, of course, was the beginning of the end of the dot-com bubble when many companies that basically just slapped dot-com on their names instantly got rich without any sort of business model. They collapsed. In the same way, I suppose, that many companies in the last few years put the words blockchain or token in their company description and then immediately got rich. And that brings me to today's guest, who's Jason Calacanis. Jason is an early internet entrepreneur. He's a veteran of the dot-com bubble an angel investor in companies like Uber and a prolific podcaster as well. One lesson of today's show is that one of the hardest things to do when either the market is soaring or when the knife is falling is to maintain perspective. A lot of the companies that are failing right now are bad companies. A lot of the companies failing right now are grifts wrapped in brain-dead religious fervor, and reality is catching up to them. But a lot of the companies that are getting killed right now are good companies, great companies, the Amazons and Googles of the next generation. Like for years, a lot of startup founders have basically been fundraisers. And now we get to see who's really a CEO. And if you're an investor, well, look, this is not an investment show and I am not an investment advisor, but it is a matter of straightforward math, just straightforward math, that fortunes are collected at the top but they're made at the bottom. The bottom is near. It's time to pay attention. 
I'm Derek Thompson. This is Plain English. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So the market is absolutely disgusting right now. Uh, Tech stocks have been destroyed this year. Crypto has been demolished. Growth stocks are down 70% if they're lucky. What is happening at the moment? Do you think we're witnessing the popping of Tech Bubble 2.0? Yeah, it's a great question. There's a lot going on concurrently. Uh, So this is unlike anything I've seen. Uh, We had the 2008 um, Great Recession that was based on one thing, real estate and a bunch of people getting mortgages who probably shouldn't have gotten mortgages and defaulting. And uh, people doing really complex uh, derivatives around those people who should never have been, um, you know, given mortgages. Then you had the dot-com bust, which I guess is most analogous since it's the same cohort of companies, uh, same style of companies. Uh, That was very different as well, because at that time, you had tens of millions of internet users. Most of them weren't on broadband. People were still afraid to put their credit cards online and the business models were not established. And so um, it was a very different world. The number of customers you could reach was typically millions to tens of millions. Now it's billions, like really a real addressable market. You know, you, you go onto the app store, you can reach billions of people. You go onto both app stores, you know, it's 3 billion people. And so what we're seeing right now is um, we had a very vibrant market uh, and then the pandemic happened. What happened when the pandemic happened? Uh, everybody looked at tech stocks and said, my God, it's so easy to make money with tech stocks. They only go up. In fact, uh, Dave Portnoy had a reoccurring joke when he was trading stocks every day um, from Barstool. He would just say, stocks only go up. And that was kind of like, we all laughed, like, no, they don't. They go to zero. Like literally, <laughs> I've seen many stocks go to zero. Uh, and people forget that. Uh, and that's an important thing for people to remember. So Jason, you were there for the dot-com bubble in 2000, and you're obviously here now for whatever this is going to be called, the COVID bubble, dot-com 2.0, web three bubble, the name will come. Uh, Can you do a brief history of the 21st century in tech for us? Like, how did we get from the dot-com bubble to the pandemic bubble? So how did we get here? Um, we had very few companies going public. And so for the last 20 years, we talked about how few companies were going public and the argument I heard as a private market investor, I've invested in 300 companies privately. Before that, I was a journalist and an entrepreneur. So I've, I've been on both sides of the table, entrepreneur and investor. That going public kind of sucked. Um, and the markets were challenging to you and you had to disclose everything. So all of a sudden, uh, we have all these unicorns, we have all this incredible innovation going on, and the business models become incredibly juicy and SaaS as a business model, selling software to businesses, reoccurring revenue, that starts to churn. Things like Salesforce and Slack are just printing money. And and then you have consumer products like Instagram. All of a sudden you have 15 users and they, they have 15 they have 15 employees and they got 100 million users. You're like, wow, this is such incredible efficiency. So we have this industry set up where it's like, these companies are not going public uh, and they're money printing machines and you can't lose, right? So, and that's when you should start to get nervous. Overfunding happens and founders say, you know, I can, every time I've raised money, seed, series A, series B, it's gotten easier. And I don't need to have discipline. I don't need to worry about the bottom line because everybody's rewarding the top line. And obviously Uber was a big beneficiary of this. They just kept raising more and more billions of dollars. And it was like, well, what can Uber do? Let's go to another hundred cities. Let's do food. Let's do VTOLs, flying cars. Let's be super ambitious. If the money is coming in cheap, our company's worth 20 billion and we can give away 5% of the company and get a billion dollars, we'll figure out how to make that worth more than 5%. So that's kind of all the setup. And then of course, the public market started getting excited. Retail investors joined the party again. Uh, always an interesting sign. And this time the retail investors are much younger and they're very sophisticated. Uh, and they're very risk-taking, and they have this app called Robinhood, which I was a seed investor in as well, and it makes it super easy. They take all the friction out to trade. Remember, the, tr- the friction to trade was $25, and you had to get on the phone and tell a broker what your order was. Like, literally, when I started trading stocks in the 90s, you had to call up, 
Say, I want to buy 100 shares of this at market. They say, great, we'll charge you 25 bucks to put your order in. Now you can buy like a fraction of a share of Apple, trade it 10 times a day and pay nothing. Um, so anyway, that's all the setup. And um, people lost their discipline on the investing side. People lost their discipline running the companies. And then the public markets said, uh, as they got overheated during the pandemic, when everybody's home, there's no sports to bet on. Uh, and people have stimulus checks, and people stop spending money. People forget that last one because the stimulus checks were a couple of grand. But if you're not going to Coachella, now you got another couple of grand. If you're not going on vacation, if you're not going out to eat, all this adds up. A couple of hundred bucks here, a couple of thousand dollars there. You start buying NFTs. You start buying stocks. What stocks do you buy? I don't know. Reddit said AMC and GameStop or funny stocks to buy. Yep, right, Let's do the that. rise of meme stocks. Yep, the rise of meme stocks. All this starts happening, and people getting disconnected from the fundamental reality of business, which is. You serve a customer with a product or service, uh, you charge them a price or you monetize them in some way, and then there's a profit at the end of the day. All of that went out the window. This is a full-blown contagion. The great news is there's you know a lot of companies that are not sustainable, uh, but most of the companies actually have real businesses. And even some of the ones that are most punished, if you look at some of the most punished companies, Peloton comes to mind, um, people love their Pelotons. They got 3 million subscribers. Like to have 3 million subscribers during the dot com era would be extraordinary. So, even the ones that are absolutely decimated have pretty loved products. Uh, you talk to anybody with a Peloton, they're like, you, you can take this from me, you know, pride from my dead hands when I have a heart attack on it. Like they're not giving it up. And so, this is a, a big swing, probably too far uh, for the overheated markets. But, you know, this is when fortunes are created. I always tell people fortunes are created in down markets, they're collected in up markets. And, and here we go, the cycle starts again, which is great for me as an early stage investor. That's a great line. So let, let me do a little bit of summarizing and then kick the question back to you. So I, I think you told a really, really interesting history and important history about how software created this incredibly important business model where people could have extraordinary scale with very few employees. That's wonderful for profits. That grows, it becomes more sophisticated. It enters more markets. You have this low interest rate environment where money is cheap. It's easy to push money into companies and they can achieve scale. But we probably got over our skis in a lot of different ways. The same way that in the early 2000s, there were companies going public that had no business models. Today, there are companies that were essentially going public or raising money based on a narrative, not based on uh, unit economics based on the ability to make money off of individual subscribers. And so that seems like, so, so whereas th that seems like an interesting difference between 2000 and 2022, the difference between business models not being there versus unit economics not being there. That's correct. But in, you know, in 2000, you did have some companies who went public with the idea that they would figure out a business later. Um, so they were like incubators going public, <laughs> which is really weird. Um, and you did start to have things like Truth Social, where they didn't have any products and their deck was like filled this with is spelling errors. Trump's Twitter, Trump's thing, essentially. Right? Yeah. So you did have people like going public just based on whatever, I guess they call it momentum or something. Um, I, I'm pretty old school. Uh, you know, there's a product. Uh, and there's customers and there's a team that builds it. And so when I make my investments, I just look at those three things. Uh, who's the team? Who's the customers? What's the product that connects them together and how much you charge for it? And you get that flywheel thing going, things go well. And what's really brilliant, you know, as a kid from Brooklyn who has no business being like one of the top seed investors in history, uh, to be honest, I didn't go to MIT. I went to Fordham at night while I was a waiter and a, and a busboy. And, um, one of the things I was struck with was it's a really milestone-based system, at least when I got out here. And you would get some friends and family or a seed investor to give you 100K, 50K. You'd build a prototype. You might get one customer. Then you might get a venture capitalist or a seed fund to give you 500K or a million. Then you get to 10 customers, 25 customers, six or seven employees. You get two or three of the management team members. And now you can raise the three or four million. And, you know, and so it goes. Um, milestone-based. And something very strange happened over the last three or four years. I'd have people I invested in, and I would be like one of those first two or three milestones out of the first four. And then they say, guess what? I'm raising money. I just raised $10 million, you know, at a $50 million valuation for, you know, 20% of the company or 15% of the company. I'd say, really? Um, we don't have product market fit yet. Like, we're skipping like five steps. And they're like, well, should we take it or not? I'm like, yeah, take it. But realize, like, in order to really be worth $50 million, we will be graded on 10 to 20 times our sales. So you're going to need five, $10 million in a hot market with a great company for that to be reality or 20 times your earnings, 30 times your earnings. So just be ready to throw off $2 million in profits to be worth 50. 
And uh, that's that may be a long road. It may be a two, three, four, five-year road, depending on the product or service. And so when I saw that, that was like a really red flag for me. And when did you start to see that? Steps. When did um, the red flags come pouring into the picture? Well, they first started the red flags, I would say a couple of years before the pandemic, where the the valuation discipline went out the window. So uh, people would say, well, this company graduating from Y Combinator wants a 15 or $20 million valuation that used to be five to 10 for the entry price. So it probably doesn't matter because if it becomes a unicorn, it doesn't matter. And I would say, well, I invested at Uber at 5 million and Com at 5 million and 10 City at 5 million. Those are all unicorns. And you're asking for 5 million more than those three combined. So you're four Ubers? I don't think so. They had more, com- com.com, the meditation app had more accomplished than you do. So that's when I was like, this is getting weird. But I sort of suspended this belief because I said, well, listen, if I'm buying 10% of the company, the outcomes are bigger. Google, Apple, Facebook, you can see it, the Uber, these outcomes are much bigger. The idea that a company would be worth 10 billion or 20 billion was just crazy years ago. So the outcomes are bigger uh, because of the global market. You can address millions of, uh, billions of customers globally with your products and services today. And, and that didn't exist 20 years ago either. The idea that you could fluidly launch an app in you know, a hundred markets, or you could launch Uber in a thousand cities, that playbook didn't exist until Google really um, you know, went on their march launching Gmail in every country. And it's smartphones proliferated. And so everyone had the platform through which you got these apps. It's interesting. One, one, one theme of, of the story that you're telling is that there was contagion on the way up and contagion on the way down, right? Absolutely. It's, it's yeah. bimodal Momentum contagion on the way up, here. Yeah. Exactly. Which is, it, which it's is a great observation. Yeah. It's a great what happens, what yeah. happens now? I mean, because you're looking right now at, at, at the crypto stocks that are down set, you know, 50 to 80%, the growth stocks that are down 70 to 80%. Do you think that right now we're near the bottom of this tech crash? Or are we rather, as uh, Keith uh, Raboy said, a uh, general partner at Founders Fund and former executive at LinkedIn and Square, he said he's getting, quote, uh, June 20, June 2000 vibes. Now, June 2000 is when the absolute bottom fell out of the NASDAQ. The NASDAQ fell from about 4,900 at the beginning of 2000 down into the 1,000s, didn't get back to its 2,000 peak for 14 years, right? So if this is June 2000 vibes, as some people, I guess, are saying, we're not going to get back to November 2021 until the mid-2030s, right? So that's a very different picture than even a lot of pessimistic people might yeah, be holding out today. That, what, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah, 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 it won't be that bad because remember, like the Apples and the Teslas and the Googles didn't exist back then, really, in their current iteration. You're talking about grown-up, middle-aged businesses that have enormous value and aren't going to fall 30, 40, And 50%. printing money. Yes. Yeah, they're not going to fall. And they're printing so much money and they're sitting on so much cash and they have these franchises that you, you just can't imagine going away. Nobody's giving up their iPhone. Nobody's giving up, uh, you know, their Amazon Prime account. Like these things are do have staying power. Nobody's like stopping their Google searches. So th- that that is a, a, a difference. But I would say we're bouncing along the bottom right now. And so each stock has to go through this capitulation moment where people say, "What is the actual value of this company? How much cash do they throw off? And how much value do I put?" You have to like, it's basically now a weighing machine as opposed to voting. I I think this is going to be successful. The markets this is a famous quote. I don't know who, uh, I was told to me by Bill Gurley, <laughs> famous venture uh, capitalist who was a mentor of mine. I, I don't know who told it to him, but the, the markets are a voting machine initially, and then they become a weighing machine. And what you're weighing is the earnings. So if this company is throwing off a billion dollars in profits a year, how much do you value the company at? 20 billion? Because you're gonna get 20 billion in returns and then you still own the company in 20 years? Okay, what is the future earnings of this? And so a whole group of companies that didn't really have product market fit are gonna quickly have to get to product market fit. In other words, customers are gonna wanna have their products. Then you have the second group of people, people love their products, but maybe they're spending more than they make. Well, now they're gonna have to prove that uh, they can continue to grow while not blowing through this cash, which means operational excellence and discipline. That means free lunches, crazy office spaces, huge, ridiculous salaries, redundancies, having 10 times as many employees as you need, and a bunch of pet projects all over the place like Google has with their, you know, project, you know, X projects and, you know, uh, all these kind of um, things that drain money. All that's going to have to go away. You got to focus on your core business. And so each stock is going through that. Can this stock be viable? 
Uh, Uber is just one of the great examples because people said, hey, ride sharing, it just will never work. And that's obviously not true. Um, the prices of, of ride sharing have gone way up in the pandemic to get drivers to come back. People are still paying and it's back to pre-pandemic levels and people are paying, you know, what would be, according to some, like really high fees, 20 bucks to have their food delivered to their house. Seems like a pretty good deal, actually. If you had an assistant who you were paying 20 or 30 bucks an hour to, it would be the same amount probably, or maybe it's a little less to actually use DoorDash or Uber Eats. So I think each of those businesses is now going to have to tighten their belts, austerity measures, and just prove to the public markets, hey, this is a profitable company. The free cash flow is there and we're worth believing in and we're disciplined and we're not going away. I think it's going to be a bouncing along the bottom and then companies go private, layoffs, the entire austerity measures across the entire economy. uh, And there's a layoff contagion that occurs. I saw this, you know, both uh, at the other crises, 2000, 2008. Everybody starts laying off 10 to 25%. If any company, according to Jack Welch, can get rid of the bottom 5% and operate better. So then everybody says, well, we're not going to waste this crisis. So we're going to do a, we're going to do layoffs. Sorry, we have to do layoffs. It's bullshit. Like, (laughs) they're just like, we're just going to get rid of the people we don't like here who are slackers. And that everybody has 10%. When you see that 25% layoff, that means the fundamental of the business needed to cut costs. But when it's 5 or 10%, that's people being opportunistic, but it's a contagion. Right. So then yeah. if you're not laying people I was going to say, to stick with the theme, there's contagions and layoffs as well. The contagious in investing, contagions in selling off. And then it seems to me like if you're in an industry where all of your competitors are laying off 5% of their workforce, your investors are looking at you thinking, why aren't you trimming the so-called fat exactly. as well? You don't want to call them fat. What's wrong people, with you? Are you an idiot? Wrong with Are you, you? delusional? Yeah, and that's, exactly. I, I, th- I think you're, I think you're prescient to see the possibility of, of layoffs being a contagion too. Yeah, it's, it's happening it's, already. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's, um, it's happening. It, it, a lot of what you're saying reminds me of a previous episode that we did with the writer Morgan Housel, who was, who was on a, a week or two ago, where he said, you know, when rates are low, money's flush, you're in the narrative economy because the company with the best story attracts the most easy money. But now that the rates are rising, money gets tighter, you're shifting from the narrative economy into the value economy. You have to prove that you can produce cash flow and profits. And that's why we're shifting not only our investors shifting from stories to earnings, but also in the answer that you just gave, companies themselves are shifting from, we have this incredible story, give us money, or the total adjustable market is $3 trillion to, oh, no, no, that's a story. That was for a different economy. This is the values economy we have to show. We have cheap offices. We're a remote workforce. We lay off the people who don't work for the company. We only focus on a very specific bottom line, unit economics. And so you're going to see a lot more discipline, I think, come out of 100%. tech. 100%. Well, what of- I like about that, the narrative versus like the reality and, and the and the you know economic is that's like voting and weighing, right? Like the voting is you're voting on the story and the weighing is you're, you're weighing the earnings. So that, that actually does um, fit. I think pretty well. Um, Speaking of voting and uh, weighing, uh, I want to get your thoughts on the crypto crash specifically. Um, And before I do that, I want to remind myself and listeners where you are on crypto, because I can't really remember another subject where I know so many really, really smart people who think this is like the next internet and a bunch of really, really smart people who think this is absolute beanie babies in the cloud. Um, So just briefly, before I ask you the deeper stuff, where do you place yourself on the crypto spectrum? Yeah. So there's a very interesting collection of technologies that are being bundled together. Um, Some of them are new um, and some of them are not. Like blockchain, very new. NFT is very new. Uh, Other things like distributed um, and, and, you know, uh, decentralized, not new, right? We had that with Napster and and Nutella and a lot of different services were not centralized. Actually, Napster was, Nutella wasn't, uh, Bitcoin, uh, um, BitTorrent wasn't. So this has existed before. Um, In fact, Travis's company before Uber was called Red Swoosh, which was a distributed um, way to share big files, right? Um, To save money on bandwidth charges. So crypto is an interesting collection of technologies. Some of them are very real and have great application or profound. Um, And then there was an entire level of grift laid on top of those and a religion. Um, And I watched the same grift happen in the dot-com era. The same hucksters, literally some of them, I won't say their names, but there were people who had dot-com companies who then became like these incredible kingmakers in crypto. In other words, they saw, they 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 spin a good yarn. They they told a really compelling story about how this was going to change the world, and they weren't necessarily wrong. Um, and the the thing that was in common is there's a grift here of like some future promise, some future product to come, um, and we'll see if it comes. But we've been at this crypto thing for ten years, and I think 
Because money is embedded in the technology, tokens, NFTs, because the money is embedded in it, people are getting rewarded for not doing work. You're rewarded for putting a white paper out or an idea or a, a, a promise of future tokens and things to come on these projects. So people get these huge rewards before they actually do the milestones, like I talked about the milestone-based system here in Silicon Valley. So if you don't have the milestone-based system, it perverts the whole thing. And that's what's happened in crypto. 99% of these projects are run by grifters or idiots, uh, and some combination in some cases. Like some people don't know they're idiots, and they don't know they're a grifter, and they're telling everybody, hey, give us your money, buy more Bitcoin. Like I saw this uh, Michael Saylor guy telling people like, you know, if you believe in Bitcoin, you're the only thing you can do that's sensible is mortgage your house, take any business you have and convert it into Bitcoin. You know, and, and he said that when Bitcoin was at 50 or 60, according to, you know, what I, what I saw online. So yeah, if, if, you, if you took that guy's advice, then your house is now worth or your the equity formerly inside of your house is now worth 40% less than it was three months ago, yeah, which is exactly. not exactly so good investing. Pretty, I'm very careful with giving this kind of advice. So that's, it's a new, I have a nuanced take on crypto. I do think that if you were going to make an analogy between the tech companies today and the dot-com era and, and then crypto, crypto would be very much more like the dot-com era than this new cohort of companies because they haven't built anything yet. And every time I talk to these crypto folks, they ask me to invest at a $50 million valuation on a white paper. I'm like, this thing's got spelling errors in it, bruh. And these ideas <laughs> are obvious and they exist. And like, I don't think you're going to disintermediate Airbnb with, their to with your token. I know who you are. You're not as talented as them. I know them. I know you. You're not them. And you are writing a white paper and getting $20 million, and then you're absconding with it to Puerto Rico? Like, is this not obvious to everybody what's going on? Apparently, it's not. It feels sometimes extremely obvious to me, but sometimes I feel like I'm going crazy because extremely brilliant people who are unbelievably intelligent in all sorts of other ideas or other domains are true fanatics, true believers when it comes to crypto, and they talk like anthropomorphized fortune cookies. It's like all they say is just stuff that you can break open a cookie and find inside of it, except the word crypto is, is printed on the label. It's what you, you said. What, what's you might want to know what their book is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, that's right. That's right. Yeah. You might exactly want to find they, out what their holdings are, are because this thing is just about who holds the next bag. Your right? line yeah. about religion reminded me, it was it a uh, Winston Churchill who said of Stalin, a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. I feel like I'm going to think of crypto from now on as a real technology wrapped inside a grift, inside a religion. Like that is what crypto is. There is something real in there that I remain curious about, but it is so difficult to dig through the religious proselytizing it's, and it's then worse through than the that. grift and worse to than that. get to the final technology. It's worse than that. They're running psyops on everybody, especially if you're a journalist or in, or in the media or you have some kind of influence. Anytime I would say like, be careful, you know, Bitcoin zero is a real possibility. You know, most technologies do get replaced. There will be something better than Bitcoin. By definition, there always is, and nothing lasts forever. Bitcoin will go to zero someday. Um, we just don't know when that day is. It could be 100 days from now, it could be 100 years from now. But almost in technology, it looks like things have a 20-year run, you know, whether it's AOL or Yahoo or Facebook. You, know, you get a good 20-year run, 30-year run. Sometimes things can cross the chasm like Apple did, but it was a little struggle in the middle there. So what they do is if you put up anything, they're like, okay, boomer, have fun being poor. You don't get it. And toxic uh, Bitcoin toxicity was, is, is an established strategy of the group. You have to tell everybody all other projects are shit. And if you don't buy this, you're going to be poor. And it's really like a psyops that's run on Twitter, run on Reddit. And they have all these accounts and they're just trying to make you feel like an idiot. And then you go over to Signal or Discord and you see pump and dump rooms where they're like, we're going to have a new coin to pump. Well, just put these things together. It's a giant grift where PSYOPs is being done on people who call out the grift. And then they're like, oh, you put laser eyes in your Twitter. Now you're part of the group and people want to affiliate. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Here's a writing tip for work. Don't just write. Use Canva Docs. It has Magic Write, a built-in AI text generator powered by OpenAI to help you create almost anything, from meeting agendas to job descriptions, marketing plans, proposals, and more. Canva is here to help you get it done. If you've used AI for work, for writing, for coming up with bullet points for 
a podcast, a meeting, you know that AI works best when you're specific, when you tell AI exactly what you want and then tell it again and again, help me do this, help me talk like this kind of person. The more specific you can be, the more helpful you'll find it is. Generate your draft fast with Canva Docs at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plain. Just go to indeed.com slash plain right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by KPMG. The people at KPMG make the difference for their clients talented teams leveraging the right technology to uncover insights that illuminate opportunity. KPMG teams together with their clients working shoulder to shoulder to help grow and transform their enterprise. Are you ready to make the difference together? Go to visit.kpmg.us backslash transformation to learn more. Well, speaking of crypto potentially going to zero, I just want to read a couple of facts and figures that I saw as I was uh, researching for this show. So Coinbase, the crypto trading platform, announced its earnings this week, I think just today. Uh, retail trading volume for on Coinbase was $177 billion in the fourth quarter of 2021, down to $74 billion in the first quarter of 2022. That's a 59% decline in retail trading volume. Monthly traders also declined by $2 million. Uh, you move on to NFTs. Wall Street Journal recently reported that by some measures, uh, NFT interest is plunged by up to past 70% worldwide search interest in the term NFT, uh, which peaked in January this year, has also now declined by 70%. I mean, what are the odds that we're looking at a shakeout in crypto that could be like, truly catastrophic for these founders, for their investors, and for some major venture capitalists that put their reputation and their principal money on the line in this industry? I, I would say 90% plus of the projects go to zero. Yeah, pretty clearly. Like, uh, and 90, 95% of the value of NFTs goes to zero. Um, and then you're left with whatever's a real project. So I do think with the NFTs, tying real world benefits to them, um, is clever. So you can put IP, intellectual property, copyright, which the Board Ape Club did. So you can take your Board Ape and then you could put it on the front of your building and make a Board Ape Yacht Club bar with your monkey. And then that can kind of draft off of somebody else who's creating a nursery school or a TV show with it. It's kind of interesting and weird. It's almost like if the Marvel characters, like you own Doctor Strange and I owned you know, the Scarlet Witch, and I could make a Scarlet Witch show and you can make a Doctor Strange, you know, theme park. It's it's kind of weird and trippy. And that's where like, you can kind of get excited about it and say, well, wow, there's something interesting there. Um, NFT is like the the Fry Fish Club that I guess Gary Vee was doing. They raised like 15 million. You get ownership, not in the, you get a membership, but it's transferable. So imagine if Soho House memberships could be flipped and sold on an open market without the permission of Soho House. That is kind of interesting. So I think there'll be some interesting NFT um, projects where they have some rights that come with it. Okay, that's cool. But that's 1% of what's going on now. And also that's Soho House. Like uh, Soho House is cool. Like Soho House is a great idea. It's a great product. When crypto was- at Highly its, profitable. Highly, highly profitable. I'll, 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 I'll give it all, all the plaudits. Real business, yeah. When crypto was at its peak of proselytization, people weren't saying we're inventing a better Soho house. They said, we're inventing a better world. They said, we're, we're remaking human nature. We're taking over the internet. This isn't, this is, we had web two, it's broken. We're building web three. Web three and slightly better 
Soho House, like are two extremely different ideas. And I don't want to reduce the benefits of the real technology here to just a distributed Soho House token. But it, 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 it continues to astonish me when I hear the real world implications of things like Board Ape Yachts Club. And it really does accumulate to, we created a club. And they have a really neat piece of art that is truly unique to each individual art holder. And it opens access to all sorts of things like owning an American Express. Like that is real. I'm not saying it's not real, but holy shit, that's so different than the promise it's, it's of It's completely Web3. different, yeah. I, and I, I think making it seem like it's going to change everything is kind of gets people to buy in and maybe be the next bag holder. And, and that's kind of what you need in all of these scams and grifts is somebody else has to buy whatever you bought at a higher price, uh, Bitcoin included, you know, Ethereum included, all of these. So they do have to have some fundamental value in the world. So with those NFTs, like you could imagine if Getty images, right? It's a pretty, stock photography, pretty big um, industry or music and music licensing, the rights to songs. Hey, if the rights to songs uh, and you and I collaborated, we wrote a folk song together and you wrote the lyrics and I wrote some of the lyrics and we say, okay, you go 70, 30 on the lyrics. You did most of them. I did the the music arrangement. So I'll do 70, 30 on that and mechanicals. And all of that's recorded somewhere. And then some third party could listen to the song and say, I want to buy 1% of the song. And they bought 1% of, you know, Freebird and we wrote it like, okay, this is a really interesting way to democratize and open up like the ability to invest in music. So I, I really do like some of those IP based ideas and I think they'll come and I think they will be successful and they could change the music industry. So, but for every example you have like that, the way I describe it, it's going to take decades. It's probably not going to work, but if it does, it could be game-changing, and most ideas will not be. And so, you know, that I, I applaud the risk, but I don't like the grift, right, if, 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 if I'm being clear there. And I just don't think people should get the rewards for work not done. And I, I think that's a, like a big, what, when you look at entrepreneurs, they're at their best when they have their backs up against the wall, they have constraints, just like an artist, you know, you you know, Bob Dylan said, like, they were like, why did you write Blood on the Tracks? It's one of his seminal albums. And he's like, because I owed Columbia Records an album and it was two years overdue. And they're like, okay, yeah, but Tangled Up in Blue and then this song and that song and Shelter from the Storm is like incredible. Like, how did you get those done? And he's like, because I owed them the album and it was like Discipline. two years overdue. It was like, <laughs> the, you know, this is Bob Dylan. The great, you know, so sometimes great, great constraints make for great art. Yeah. I totally agree. There's a great line from Robert Frost, um, writing poetry without rhyme is like playing tennis without a net. And I feel like a lot of entrepreneurs in the last two years, particularly in the crypto space, have been playing tennis without a net. And now with, with interest rates rising, the net is being reinstalled on the tennis course. And I don't they think learn they, tennis I don't think they're holding rackets net. or I don't think there's a ball either. Holding, I think exactly. they're just swinging their arms thinking there they're spiking balls, it. There are rackets, there's no net. They totally made it up. They're just swinging empty hands and pre pretend balls. That's totally true. So let's talk about some of the economic aftershocks here. Um, I want to actually start with history. Um, how did the dot-com bubble shape the next generation of tech? And is there any lesson from the dot-com bubble that can inform our understanding of what's going to come after this mini crash? So it was um, like a nuclear winter. You could not raise money for basically a year and a half, two years, and companies couldn't go public for five or six years. And it was very severe. Um, venture firms were afraid to make capital costs to their LPs. So if you were Fred Wilson or, you know, doing Flatiron Partners at the time, Unisquare Ventures eventually, like, do you want to call your endowment, Harvard or whoever, you know, Ford Foundation and say, hey, we need money when their stock market portfolios are off 70% or something? You don't, because then they would have to liquidate and it's just the whole thing becomes messy. So uh, you had this, just everything was frozen. Now, what that did was it led to a group of people, myself, Nick Denton with Gawker, um, the Flickr team, Delicious. We just built products that cost no money. So Brian Alvey and I and Peter Rojas started Weblogs Inc. We found somebody to be a salesperson, Sean Gold, who worked basically for a no salary, but for, you know, on contingency for sales. And we built Engadget and Autoblog and Joystick and, and Nick built Gawker. And Nick was paying Elizabeth Spires $1,500 a month and Peter Rojas $1,500 a month. I offered them $2,000 a month. I got Samsung to do a sponsorship. Like we just bootstrapped everything. And it created this really, Flickr was bootstrapped. Delicious was bootstrapped. And then all of those companies started to grow and you were able to capture people's imagination because you were 
the one new company was that that was launched that month. And then next month, there were two companies launched. So the, this idea that there were like 100 new startups getting funded a week, there wasn't uh, 100 new startups getting founded a year. There were two dozen. So it became very quiet. It became very bespoke. And, you know, there just weren't an, a lot of albums or restaurants opening every year. And um, everybody who was in it was super qualified and there was a density of talent and everything was affordable because nobody had jobs and everybody went back to work at Sony or Macy's. The idea that you could work at a startup, you know, and make 50 grand, or you could be a writer, a journalist, freelance for Nick Denton for 30,000 a year, and you could work as a waiter on the weekends or something like that was like, great. I could do something interesting with my life. And, and then the rebuild process began in the economy. It won't be as acute this time because so much venture has been raised over the last couple of years and the business models are so secure now and iPhones exist that three or four X or the mobile phones exist three or four X, the amount of consumption going on, high speed, all that stuff we talked about, the rails of uh, you know money flowing. It's not going to crash down to that level of nuclear winter. Um, but what you will see is um, people are not going to have four or five job offers like they did. Um, for the next couple of years, or maybe a year or two. Um, there'll still be a lot of jobs. You're still going to have the big companies. But like I said, people had to go work at the big companies. Like Facebook's got a hiring freeze. Apple's forcing people to come to the office and they're letting their machine learning guru leave and they're not fighting for him. Uh, that tells you they're, don't, they're too prideful to do layoffs. So they're just like, come back to the office or quit. And basically, they're challenging their own employees to quit. Um, and I think they'd be very satisfied if 10 or 20%. So what's going to happen is these crazy offers, crazy, you know, a competition for talent that's going to get muted. Doesn't mean that great talent's not going to be competed for. It's just not going to be as insane and, and illogical. Um, which then starts the process anew. Right. It's like it's like a forest fire effect, you know? The, the, Correct. The, the forest burns down, and then there's nothing, and it's terrible, and then it creates biodiversity, that new kinds of plants that couldn't grow because of the canopy that whatever blocked the sunlight suddenly grow, and you have the, the cycle re rejuvenated again. That's exactly ask, what's happening. I want to ask about yeah. the aftershock that you see to the broader economy, because you know I'm piecing together a couple different ideas you're putting out here. Number one, Stocks are falling, obviously. That's declining wealth. Declining wealth leads to less spending. And this is the converse of the so-called wealth effect. People feel less rich, so they splurge less. Number two, less spending means the labor market cools off. Like we've had years of worker power over the last few years, lots of quitting, wage growth at the bottom. I think that's going to slow down too. Number three, during the pandemic, you saw an increase in so-called early retirements. But now that a lot of those nest eggs that people who left the labor force during the pandemic had, those are 20% smaller now than they were four months ago. And prices are still rising. So I think you're gonna have a great unretirement. I think you're gonna see a lot of people who left the labor force over the last two years start to come back to the labor force, rising participation rate. And number four, when you put all this together, more workers, smaller portfolios, less spending. I think all of it will pull down inflation over the next six months, unless supply chains are just disgusting. And I think that'll probably coincide with a mild recession. So more workers, a little bit less spending, a little bit less wealth, a decline in inflation, and a mild recession. Pick up th that thread wherever you want. How do you see the economic aftershocks? So labor participation has been going down since the 90s. It peaked in the like 99 era, um, especially amongst 25 to 55 just year clear, olds. Labor force participation is the share of prime age workers, 25 to 54. Typically, that's how they look at it. The share of all people in the country that are 25 to 54 years old who are either working or looking for work in the economy. Correct. And I think a lot of people gave up. They don't want to work. They don't see value in these jobs. And they figured out a way to make enough money, and we'll, we can parse that a bit, to basically opt out of the labor force. And you you also pointed out the early retirement, uh, you know, hey, I'm a nurse, this has really sucked being a healthcare worker in the pandemic, I'm 66, I was gonna retire at 68, I'll just cut out now. Uh, or I'm a journalist and I got a bio package from the New York Times, whatever it is. So um, the number of people who are refusing to go back to work has led to awesomely, uh, minimum wage going up, not because Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are screaming about it, but because there's a competition for entry-rung jobs. Supply and, and so, demand. Yep. Demand for workers went up, 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 and supply of workers went down. Yep. So we now see labor having a lot more power. 
uh, Amazon offering 15 to 20 bucks an hour and paying for your associate's degree and giving you healthcare day one. Like they're really in a massive competition here. Apple got shamed into it. Even McDonald's, which has fought for decades to keep minimum wage low, has said, you know what? Screw it. We're going to get rid of um, cashiers and put kiosks in, and then we're going to pay everybody else in the business a little more money um, and try to keep people motivated. So this is a, a pretty interesting moment in time. So to get out of this, what we'll probably see, and it, this is a maelstrom. So it's like you and I trying to predict it is like trying to predict a weather pattern mm -hmm. and like this crazy, it, you there's know, 19 uh, world sort of billiard balls crashing into 18 other billiard balls. We're trying to say where, where, where they're going to go. Yeah. Some version of this will happen where, okay, inflation, maybe we get it to come down a little bit. Maybe people do austerity measures themselves. They do a staycation instead of going to Europe. They move in with their cousin instead of getting the apartment, instead of being in a one bedroom alone or getting a two bedroom so they could have an office. They move into somebody else's two bedroom and there's no office and they start going back to the office and people lower their personal balance sheets, build up a little bit of cash, pay down their debt and then start spending again. And so the same thing we're seeing in those companies that have to like maybe, you know, and Dara said this on Sunday in his email, which I thought was very uh, great leadership. I'm still this a large Dara, the CEO of Uber. Yeah. Of Uber, he wrote a really great message like, hey, listen, hiring's going to be, you know, something that's a luxury and we're going to have austerity measures, essentially, I'm interpreting it for him. Um, you know, we're going to see some rebalancing of people's personal balance uh, sheets, and then that's how the country gets out of this. I think labor participation is a major one because what you really want in an economy to be vibrant is not printing money and giving people stimulus checks. That doesn't help, actually. Um, that creates inflation, as we've seen. What you really want is a productive workforce and you want technology uh, creating um, efficiencies. Right, right. I think it's important to say that a lot of the things that we're describing are very likely to accumulate to a recession. It might be a micro recession. Oh, we're in a recession now, yeah. Yeah, we, yeah, we had we had one uh, quarter of negative G GDP growth, and I believe that a technical recession is two consecutive two, quarters. Two, and of, so what's the chances we got out of it in this quarter? <laughs> I, I agree. I, I think the odds are very likely that we are headed into a, either a, a minor technical recession or a micro recession, which, to be clear, is also what we had in 2000, 2001. We had a, a very brief recession um, that we then sort of swung out of, even though the rest of that decade was, was relatively bad for growth. Last question for you is actually about the future of investing and how investing is going to change. Um, there are like 20, 15, 20 million investors who came online since 2020 um, and meme stocked their way through the pandemic. And I saw research from Morgan Stanley today that concluded that the typical amateur investor who got into the market in 2020, like the diamond hands generation, boarding the meme stock roller coaster has now lost more than 100% of their gains. So what do you think this is going to do for the future of investing in America? I think this next generation is like beast mode when it comes to finances. Like they understand how to do puts and calls and to buy derivatives and to build a portfolio. This is stuff people learned in their late 30s or 40s. Like most people in my generation, Gen X, were like, yeah, 401k, fuck you, it's a scam. Uh, and then they hit, like they had a kid at 34 and they're like, yeah, maybe I should look at that 401k again. You got 22-year-olds who have been trading stocks for a year or two. They understand the market. Yeah, they may have placed some wrong bets, but they know what a put and a call is. Like, I, I don't do puts and calls. <laughs> like, I just buy stocks at home for 10 years, like companies I believe in. So I think you have this incredibly sophisticated group of people on their finances maybe Gen X and, and the, some of millennials were on autopilot. Yeah, the economy works. My parents told me to go to college, get a job, get a good paying job. Like that was kind of people's financial literacy. Now, this group really understands it. Now, did they wipe out a couple of grand? Sure. Could they make that back in a year? Yes. And are some of them becoming like really good at this? Like, yeah. Like, And I think they're looking at it and saying, I'm going to go work for you for 50 grand a year, 60 grand a year. I think I could make that in the market. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting because I, you know, that's an interesting answer. There's parts of it that I think I disagree with, but it, it's possible that, it's possible that I think they might be beast mode on tactics, but dumb on strategy. You can understand what a put is. You can understand what an option is. You can understand what a call is. You can still think that you can beat the market consistently by knowing a little bit and tr day trading at 2 p.m. rather than getting a full-time job, which absolutely is going to make you maybe a hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars if every year is 2021 
But here we are in 2022, understanding fundamentally that every year is not 2021, and you can't just say, stock go up, I bet, to the moon. That isn't a strategy that's going to get you through your 20s, 30s, 40s, because stocks go up and down. So it, can they change gears is the question. From a, from a strategy standpoint, you know, there's, I think there's a lot of... Um, I think there's a lot of truth in the understanding that, that markets are relatively efficient. It's really, really hard for most people to beat them on a day-to-day basis. And as a result, it makes sense to put your money in a relatively diverse index fund and use your time to actually build things that make the world better, um, that you know are an expression of your skills. And so I think that if they, if they take the tactics that they've learned and they apply it to maybe a more sophisticated strategy and you know, go out and, and build something with their time rather than sort of just hang out on, on you know, Reddit looking at uh, uh, AMC posts. That, to me, is a, a better vision of, the, of Gen Y, Gen Z. But I think I, they I, should look at the, go back to Reddit, re-examine their thinking when they bought AMC, and then say, what's the anti-AMC? What's a company that's actually underappreciated, that prints money, and that I love their product or service? And let me, instead of trying to beat Citadel in some game of chicken, let me see if I can get that job for 100K and every month put $1,000 into my Wealthfront, my Robinhood, um, still a shareholder in Robinhood, um, was an investor in Wealthfront. If I can put a little bit of money into this balanced portfolio instead and forget it, and uh, yeah, I'm going to pick some stonks over here, but I'm going to pick the ones that have a ton of cash, free cash flow, that do a dividend, and they'll learn that next part of it, right? So you learn the momentum investing, now learned like fundamental investing and, and free cash flow investing. Like turn over another card. Like you learned how to play aces. Now learn how to play 10 jack suited. Like these are different starting hands. Like try to learn how to play a full poker game. Try to you know, improve your post-flop play, not just your you know shoving the chips in pre-flop play, right? That's, that's my word, some encouragement. Now the hard work begins. Sharpen your pencil, everybody, because this is what it's like to run a you know, run a, run a company in wartime, right? Like it's going to be like wartime CEO time. You, you, you cannot be like a overfunded CEO in this market. Like you're going to be way too soft. I already see it. I see it in my portfolio already. I see people coming to me like, ah, I think I should, you know, I can't raise, so I should shut down. I'm like, you've got nine months of runway, get rid of a third of your company, raise your prices a third. You've now got 20 months of runway. We'll figure it out. And they're like, yeah, I just don't know if I'm up for it. I'm like, up for it. What are we talking about here? What, what else are you going to do? And they're like, yeah, I don't know. Save the whales or something. I don't know. I, I, I hadn't like, thought of exactly this this frame, but but it's almost as if the, the last few years have raised a micro-generation of fundraisers that now has to become a micro-generation of CEOs. And this is the moment where the fundraisers have to become CEOs. And you're looking at your portfolio thinking, who am I backing who's just really talented at getting the bag? And who have I backed that can lead a company? Making money from customers is hard. And like learning how to be a storyteller and gaming investors in a hot market, pretty easy. In, in fact, it it got easier for them to raise money each round. That's not supposed to be how it goes. All right, Jason, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you very much for listening. Plain English is produced by Devin Manzi. If you have a comment, a concern, a question, an idea for a future show, please email us at plain English at Spotify.com. That's plain English. No space, English at Spotify.com. Mm-hmm.